This episode of the Pillar Podcast is brought to you by Seton Home Study School, an accredited school assisting homeschooling parents with an academically excellent and authentically Catholic curriculum. For more information, go to seatonhome.org. Hey everybody, welcome to the Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation each week. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn, and I am joined by my podcasting partner and Pillar co-founder, Ed Condon. And Ed, 28 years ago today, I don't know if you know this, but 28 years ago today, Los Angeles police chased former Buffalo Bills running back O.J. Simpson through the freeways of Southern California, him in a white Bronco, them ostensibly in squad cars, and as I recall it, a helicopter, setting off what was for many people the celebrity trial of the 20th century. Ed, where were you that day? Uh, I was at my grandparents' house in Chicago, I believe. Um, when when this occurred, I, I remember it. I mean, I don't, I don't remember it well, but I remember it going on. I th- you used the word chase. I, it was I a low-speed chase, wasn't it, it? It was more they were just sort of, you know, following leisurely. <laughs> right. <laughs> Even a phalanx of squad cars, as I recall. But yeah, that was that was a heck of a thing. Um, did you watch the, the, the dramatization that they did? Was it last year or two years ago? With, with Cube? With Cuba Gooding Jr.? Yeah, with Cuba Gooding Jr.? And David Schwimmer playing, um, playing, David uh, playing Kardashian. Mr. Kardashian. Yeah. yeah, I did watch it. it was, I, th- I liked it a lot. I, loved I it. liked it a lot. I thought it was very, very good. I, 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 so many things. It reminded me that, you know, how far we have come as a society um, <laughs> in the last two decades, oh, basically, yeah, three decades now. History, huh? and for no other reason than public servants in California could smoke in their offices back then. Uh, yeah, so how far, in, I mean, how far we have descended, perhaps, is I think what you're trying, trying to say. Well, I, I mean... Uh, there's there's a bit of that um you know we, we have not necessarily made unqualified progress as a society since the early 90s it has been um it, there's been give and take i think is probably the the most measured way i could say it we were young when oj simpson happened and um i mean you know in 1994 i was in june of 1994 i was i would have been seven i suppose and um so i certainly i didn't even watch this thing i heard about it from sorry june the, of 1994 you would have been seven no, nope, nope, wouldn't have been seven. No, so sorry. Would have okay. been 11. I was about to say, am I that yeah, much no, older no, than no. you? No, 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 would have been 11. I would have been 11. Uh, I would have been 11 in June of 1994, my mistake. I just, uh, I did the, did the math wrong on that. Uh, I, yeah, I would have been 11, um, but but uh, we didn't wa- I didn't watch it or anything like that. In fact, I sort of heard about this from our from our, our minister's wife the next day. I grew up in an evangelical church, and I heard about it from our minister's wife like the next Sunday. She said, uh, did you see this terrible thing about Simpson on the on the television and she was always decrying sort of contemporary television shows. So I thought she was just like lamenting something that had happened on the Simpsons, which was a show that as evangelicals, we weren't allowed to watch. And so I really like, uh, I turned my ear because I thought maybe she was going to recap an episode or something like that, but no such luck. Instead, she was just sort of telling us about this kickoff of the major. The moral panic over the Simpsons in the early nineties was a real yeah. thing. I, um, my Catholic grade school in the North of Chicago, St. Francis Xavier uh, was, was run in those days by, um, our, our beloved headmistress, Sister Mary Kay, and I mean, we had to wear a uniform. But if you know, for gym, you could you could wear a T-shirt instead of the the regulation red polo shirt. Uh, and and Simpsons themed or branded material of any kind was absolutely prohibited. Uh, it was it was considered godless, godless and decadent, mm-hmm. and uh, you know it would it it was a short step in Sister Mary Kay's mind from wearing a Bart Simpson t-shirt to basically huffing crack. Sure. Um, and I 
I have not huffed crack and I've watched a lot of Simpsons, so I don't know that she's necessarily been proven right there. But I, I, to this day, she had great maternal solicitude for all of her students and I know her heart was in the right place. about. Well, God rest her, I presume. Um, I don't, I don't believe she's passed away. I think she's retired long since now, but I I think she may still be going. Well, then God reward her in this life. Um, Indeed. Yeah. I, it's kind of interesting because uh, first of all, I don't think you have crack. I'm just going to put that out there. I'm I'm glad we can, we can affirm that. Good. I mean, in as much as I know, I don't think you have crack. Second of all, yeah, it's kind of interesting because the Simpsons were sort of regarded as being like the, uh, this thing, which would be the destruction of the modern family. And, uh, and of course, um, no one knew that. Barbara Bush was against the Simpsons. Yeah. Like, personally. Right. And, and they were a foil to, um, they were a foil to sort of America's most beloved and wholesome television family, the Cosbys and, uh, or the Huxtables as it were. And, uh, and it Indeed. turned out that if you were you're going to pick a winner in terms of, uh, mo- you know, moral formation. Um, Huxtable was the, was the wrong way to go. Homer's come out on top in that particular <laughs> right. dad that's, competition. That's exactly, that's exactly right. Okay. Uh, this is not a show about shows. Uh, and we're going to have a lot of fun later. Before we get to that, we do have to talk about some very serious stuff. Because some interesting things, you know, it's the summertime. So not always are interesting things happening in the news and the life of the church. But some interesting and important and significant things are happening in the life of the church just this week. And we're going to talk about them. And we're going to start with something actually that we haven't kind of covered at the pillar. We're covering it at the pillar right now. But we haven't covered it at the pillar for a few reasons. One, we've just been drinking from a fire hose this week with a lot going on. Second of all... Um, you know, I'm not sure what we would add other than this discussion, but um, it emerged this week, Ed, that the Bishop of Worcester, Mass, um, Bishop McManus of of Worcester, Massachusetts, has uh, Robert McManus of Worcester, Massachusetts, has issued a decree, which he issued yesterday, prohibiting a Catholic school, uh, a middle school in the diocese of Worcester, Mass, from calling itself Catholic. It may no longer, the decree says, um, the Nativity School of Worcester is prohibited from this time forward from identifying itself as a Catholic school and may no longer use the title Catholic to describe itself. Mass sacraments and sacramentals are no longer permitted to be celebrated on Nativity School premises or to be sponsored by Nativity School in any church building or chapel within the Diocese of Worcester. So this is a Jesuit middle school in the Diocese of Worcester, Mass, and there has been a long-simmering conflict between this Jesuit middle school and the Diocese of Worcester, which again just hasn't made its way into our coverage, but there's been a, a, a sort of conflict simmering over several months now between this um, middle school and the Diocese of Worcester um, over um, the display of, uh, of flags at the school. The school, which is um, a tuition-free school for students, which um, predominantly serves um, students from lower-income communities and predominantly serves students uh, who are African-American or Latino. It is not part of the diocesan sort of a network of schools, but it is a Catholic school in the diocese. And the school since January has been flying, oh, excuse me, since January of last year has been flying a, a pride flag um, and uh, a Black Lives Matter flag. Capital B, capital L, capital Yeah, M. Black Lives Matter sort of ink, as it were, flag or sort of the the, the entity, I suppose. Um, uh, and, uh, and the bishop has, um, has kind of pushed back on that he the bishop said that the symbol of the of the black lives matter flag has been this is back in april he said has been co-opted by some factions at times at least co-opted by some factions which instill broad brust distrust of police and those entrusted with enforcing our laws um and uh he he hasn't mentioned you know there have been other criticisms of sort of black lives matter inc and their anthropology and these kinds of things but in as much well he actually mentions that in the in the decree okay do tell he says that um the Black Lives Matter, again, capital B, capital L, capital M, 
the Catholic Church teaches that all life is sacred, and the Church certainly stands unequivocally behind the phrase, Black, Black Lives, Lives Matter, Matter, and strongly affirms that. However, the quote-unquote Black Lives Matter movement has co-opted the phrase and promotes a platform that directly contradicts Catholic social teaching on the importance and role of the nuclear family and seeks to disrupt the family structure in clear opposition to the teachings of the Catholic Church. Okay, so in the decree he says that his concern is not the phrase Black Lives Matter, his concern is the Black Lives Matter kind of capital mat movement, which he says has co-opted the phrase and promotes a platform that directly contradicts Catholic social teaching and the importance and the role of the nuclear family and seeks to disrupt the family structure and clear opposition to the teachings of the church. And this comes from some things that sort of emerged in 2020, where um, the founders of the Black Lives Matter movement were seen as being sort of immensely critical of the of the nuclear family and these kinds of things. Well, there was a manifesto, as I recall. Do tell you have the you have the uh, you have the background here. I, well, I don't know. They have all of it. And I want to tread carefully here, but it, it's my understanding that on the Black Lives Matter organization website there was. And a when sort we say organization, policy. I just want to say we mean this entity called the Black Lives Matter Global Network, which is the yeah yeah had a had a basically policy manifesto or at least a, a values manifesto, which was, as I recall, um, overtly and directly critical of the structure of the nuclear family. I think it actually called for its abolition. I think basically. it said, I, I'm looking it up now, dis, it talked about disrupting the Western prescribed nuclear family structure. And at the same time, this might be part of what the bishop's concern is, fostering a queer affirming network and dismantling cisgender privilege. So, um, so. those things, I think, were eventually sort of removed from their from its site. But the, those were in 2020, like the sort of big controversial phrases of the Black Lives Matter Global Network. So that has been one flag that has been displayed at the school, which has been, to which there has been objection by the bishop. And the other has been the the pride flag. And um, the uh, the bishop uh, in his decree says that the gay pride flag represents support of gay, it's my contention, he says, that the gay pride flag represents support of gay marriage and actively living in LGBTQ plus lifestyle. The flying of these flags in front of a Catholic school, he says, sends a mixed, confusing, and scandalous message to the public about the church's stance on these important and moral and social issues. And so, therefore, um, in his decree, the bishop says that um, the schools, again, may no longer call themselves Catholic or celebrate uh, mass sacraments, or he says celebrate sacramentals, I guess he means blessings and stuff, uh, at, at the, on the premises of the school or to be sponsored by the school and other church buildings and these kinds of kinds of things. It's kind of, it's not, this is not unprecedented, but it is, um, uh, whenever it happens, it's kind of a big deal. Wouldn't you agree? Uh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's actually, what's interesting is, as you say, it's not unprecedented because we had this case several years ago in the Archdiocese of Indianapolis, where, again, another Jesuit school was was told it could no longer call itself or hold itself out to be a, a Catholic school by the Archbishop there. Uh, it was also in relation to sort of LGBTQ plus issues, although that was related to the school's refusal to not renew the contract of a teacher who'd entered a same-sex civil union, as I recall. Um, but what's interesting is um, that situation in Indianapolis has not been resolved, at least not publicly. It's been, it was appealed to Rome. There was a sort of suspension of the bishops, the archbishops intervention there while Rome considered the matter. Uh, but it has not, so far as I'm aware, been resolved. There was, we reported more than a year ago now that the Vatican had actually tasked Cardinal Tobin of Newark, who's the former archbishop of Indianapolis to sort of go and be a be a sort of broker between the school and the archdiocese to try and come up with a kind of uh, squaring of the circle, a, 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 a way of resolving the issue that presumably wouldn't involve the Vatican having to make a formal 
you know, sort of authoritative ruling on one side or the other. Um, but to the best of my awareness, uh, we've had neither an informal resolution to this that's made it go away or a formal resolution by the by the Vatican. And so we still have that up in the air to have this now happen at another Jesuit school in another diocese in another state. Um, it, it's very striking. And I mean, I, I, I've read um, the bishop's decree, obviously, uh, but what, what we don't know, although we did know in the case of Indianapolis, is all of the steps and how sort of canonically and administratively the, the bishop in Worcester uh, proceeded with sort of, you know, requests, admonitions, warnings, that sort of thing, which all of which weighs heavily on um, the, the exercise of authority that he's doing in this decree. So we don't have um, that sort of exhaustive documentary background on it yet. I, I we do. It. We have a little bit of it in the response. So when the school issued their response, they gave us a timeline. In March, the bishop told the school to remove the flags after some back and forth. Um, the school didn't remove the flags. In May, the bishop told Nativity that if the flags were not removed, the school would be prohibited from identifying itself as a Catholic school, and then the decree was published. So there is there is a bit of a sort of um, an escalation, a procedural ex- escalation that in the manner that seems to be required by these things. But of course, the, the devil is always in the details, and, uh, and, and we don't have the set of decrees to yeah. review. What is very interesting, though, is in the bishop's decree, uh, he cites a recent document from the what is now the dicastery for catholic education which is called the identity of the catholic school for a culture of dialogue and we did cover this document when it came out earlier this year um and we did talk about it on the podcast i think and it i mean he's not he's not wrong to cite this document it was fairly clear and unambiguous about the role of the bishop in being vigilant over the authentic catholic identity of catholic schools and i mean the congregation sorry the dicastery now, um, spoke a great deal about, you know, what what I suppose in management jargon you'd call stakeholders, but you know the it, 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 the idea of the Catholic school as a society and who are the members of the society. And it's the students, it's the families, it's the teachers, it's the administration, it's the faculty, it's the wider Catholic community, it's the pastor if the school is attached to a parish, all of these things. But it very clearly laid out sort of what the role is of each of these different um, strata of membership uh, of the society of a Catholic school, and it was at least as I recall, very unambiguous about the role of the bishop and the, no, the Catholic identity of a school is a real thing. It can't be fudged. It can't be compromised. You can't wear it lightly. Um, that, you know, this is, this is a word that has to carry weight. It is a word that has to mean something. And the something it has to mean is it has to mean the fullness of the message of the gospel and the teaching of the church on, not just on sort of spiritual matters, not just on theology, but on faith and morals. And, and so I, I think the bishop's got um, more than a leg to stand on in citing this document in this particular uh, conflict. Although I, you know, given the lengths the, the dicastery for Catholic education um, have gone to not to weigh in definitively on, on the issue in, um, in Indianapolis, I wonder how excited they will be to see presumably another such case arrive on their desks. Yeah, the school says that they're going to appeal it. Um... They says that they say they're going to make a recourse, and so that will go to the Congregation for Catholic Education. They also say that they, um, after meaningful deliberation and discernment by its board, leadership team, faculty, and partners, Nativity will continue to display the flags in question to give visible witness to the school's solidarity with our students, families, and their communities. The the um, commitment to our mission, grounded and animated by gospel values, Catholic social teaching, and our Jesuit heritage, compels us to do so. So they're they're um, they're not backing down, um, and. Uh, um, it is going to the congregation, and and uh, you know, we have said for a while that that Indianapolis decision um, would 
impact um, the way in which other bishops sort of responded to um, questions related to Catholic identity in their diocese. Now, I think people, I don't know, I'm, I'm going to be honest, like, I don't know enough about, uh, like, I feel like it has been hard for me to get, like, 100% clear, definitive, yes, I can definitively say this is what a Black Lives Matter flag means information, because I just, I don't know, and I mean, I, I know that there can be a distinction between the, the 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 statement Black Lives Matter, which I think we should all be able to say, and for a variety of important reasons, I think it's important to be able to say that Black Lives Matter when there's a sense in which the you know the lives or the dignity of, of Black people in America is not regarded as equal. I think that's important, um, I, but I do think that there is a distinction to be made between that and the Black Lives Matter Global Network and the things which it stands for. That seems to me to be obvious and, and important to be able to distinguish. I don't know anything about the history of the flag. I haven't done any. I haven't looked into it enough, you know, before this show to be able to say anything about the the flag so you know is it is it possible that people of goodwill can disagree about sort of the substance of that as it relates to catholic identity i honestly just don't know so i'm not going to land on a thing there i think the pride flag is generally taken to be understood as the representation not only of sort of the notion that people who identify as gay have dignity but a set of political responses to that which are uh, most of which are indeed contrary to the teachings of the catholic church so there's a much firmer foundation, I think, for what the bishop is saying there in his um, in his uh, deliberation. But the the congregation will pro- will weigh not only the the substance of the thing, but also the procedures of the thing. And we don't know the procedural elements of it. Oftentimes, recourses end up sort of <laughs> being decided on procedural grounds, for better or for worse. Um, but as to the substance of the thing, I, I, it seems that the document that you cite would rather clearly align with the bishop's decision here. If the bishop makes an argument that this is you know, the best course of action he could make to protect and preserve the the charism, identity, and mission of Catholic schools in his diocese. I, I, I would expect that on substance, given what the congregation has done in recent months, that if they were to make a decision on this, they would probably land there. However, the Brebeuf decision, or, or the Brebeuf situation, points out to me the fact that the congregation does not seem to me to be especially eager to make decisions on this point. At all. Uh, yeah, that the congregation sort of waiting for quite some time after um, Brebeuf Jesuit made an appeal and then giving the thing to Cardinal Tobin, who, who was, you know, formerly Archbishop of Indianapolis and also Secretary of the of the um, Congregation for Institutes of Consecrated Life. But the congregation, which seems to be putting out these sort of very strong documents and statements on Catholic education, does not seem to be keen for whatever the ecclesiastical repercussions or ramifications would be for firm and deliberative decisions that would seem to align with those statements and documents. Would you agree? Yes, I would absolutely agree with that entirely. It's it, it's one thing, and I think it's a very praiseworthy thing when um, when a Vatican department like the Congregation, sorry, the Dicastery for Catholic Education uh, puts out a clear and unambiguous document because clarity um, is is important. And teaching is important. It's the important. It's a teaching mission. Teaching yeah. is important. It's important that it be clear and unambiguous. So I think it's great. But again, as you say, it's important that they not just talk the talk, but that they be prepared to walk the walk. Because if, and again, I, um, like you, I have, I, I have no particular substantive evaluation to offer on the display of a Black Lives, capital B, capital L, capital M, matter of flag, um, and how that might square with the, the congregations, the former congregations, uh, recent text. Um, but again, on the, on the LGBT pride flag, I think there is a much clearer argument because it does, the document doesn't previous documents from the congregation for Catholic education have made clear, uh, that the, 
the church's teaching on the dignity of all people, including those who identify as gay, um, is is very clear and must be upheld and everything else. But that this also is neither uh, in contradiction with or um, should be seen to uh, supplant or replace also the church's teaching on sexual morality and the institution of marriage and, and things like that. So I think, again, there, there seems to be obvious relevance there. I, again, much of this has to do with the extreme um, detail of how requests, um, orders, all those other things from the bishop to the school will have played out in the sort of lang- legal language that was used and all that. Um, but, you know, prima facie, I would say there's relevance there. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it, there's, this is going to happen more and more. Yeah. Um, this is, this, this, you know, you see stories about um, not just flags, but, you know, sort of uh, pride days um, being kicked off at Catholic schools or sometimes pride weeks happening at Catholic schools. And parents are often concerned by this and what it might mean and what it might be suggesting that is being taught contrary to the church's moral teaching in schools. Um, and I, I think that the dicastery will need to decide whether it is all mouth and no trousers on these documents that it's putting out. That if schools, um, school administrators, teachers, families, or local bishops or parish priests, things like that, um, take a stand and say, we want to see the documents of the dicastery brought to life in our school community, they have to know the dicastery is going to back them up. Right, exactly. Again, this exactly isn't right. to suggest that they, they should in this case. I don't know enough about the details, but I'm saying in general, the, the, the dicastery's behavior suggested that they don't want to say yay or nay to any particular case. And that 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 will send its own message is, I would say, likely to send a very strong message of, well, don't look to us for answers. Right. We, we just put these documents out there. Don't don't expect us to actually have anything to say about how they should be implemented, even when the documents appear to have quite a clear blueprint for how they should be implemented. Yeah, and if you implement them and it causes trouble, don't expect us to sort of back you up either, which is unfortunate. I mean, you know, look, that's our prediction. Our prediction is that the congregation is going to be loath to, to, uh, to address this, and I think we're right, and I think Brave Wolf kind of indicates that. Um, and also, it's worth noting. I think even more reason why you won't see the congregation doing much on this is, isn't the head of the the dicastery for Catholic education? Isn't that Cardinal Versaldi? Uh, yes, he'd be well over seventy five. Mm-hmm. So you think? So I, I, I would not only would I suggest that Cardinal Versaldi is um, soon to be replaced as head of the dicastery, but I would also, this being the Congregation for Catholic Education, would put that on my short list of three or four dicasteries most likely to get to a get lay prefect. To get a lay prefect. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I wouldn't expect them to so much as twitch their nose at this case uh, prior to any possible change of leadership. Oh, interesting. Huh. I hadn't thought about that. Well, we're going to watch it. We're not, we're going to, we're going to keep talking about other stuff, but we are going to watch this because it is, it's sort of, um, you know, the, re, the, uh, the unfortunate thing, and it, it has to be said, the, the unfortunate thing is this school, um, does a good thing. It offers Catholic education to kids who can't pay for it in communities that might not otherwise have Catholic education or good educational options. It does a good thing. And um, the the unfortunate thing is this, um, the decision of the school leaders and the response of the bishop means that the kids who are being formed in this school will not get mass, um, will not get, you know, will, I don't know what sort of the limitation on sacramentals means, but we'll not have a, the rosary at school or whatever other pious devotions that they have. And, you know, distribution of the ashes on Ash Wednesday. That's sort of right. Thing. Exactly. I mean, so there's a, there's a, an extraordinary poverty there. 
And it's a, it's a poverty of spiritual formation for the students that has come out of the choice to allow this to become a standoff. It would have been, I mean, I think the, the code certainly has a preference for these things to be resolved sort of extra, um, to be resolved ahead of the manner of sort of an administrative decree and a recourse in a way that is in accord with the teachings of the church and also tenable precisely so that um, those who who are the recipients of the church's ministry are not you know deprived of them as a consequence of this. At the same time, it is also true that students who would be taught things which are contrary to the teachings of the Catholic Church in a school and at the same time be given uh, you know, spiritual the spiritual food of, of mass and sacramentals will be necessarily sort of confused about what the Catholic Church teaches and will be deprived in a certain way of formation as, uh, you know, formation born of the heart of the church anyway. And that in itself is the thing which I think the bishop is trying to resolve. But if the administration of the Catholic ministry believe that sort of the most important thing for us to do is to fly these flags, arguably the school is in need of a kind of reform and renewal. Um it is important. Now, I think you're going to say the school's in need of being closed, but I'd like to see ecclesiastical no, things. No. Okay. Arguably, the school's no, in no. need of reform and rule, but it will be unfortunate if that is not the outcome because this becomes just a who has the power here kind of power struggle. I, I very much worry that is going to quickly become what this is all yeah. about. Although I, I don't know that I agree with you that the ones who will suffer here are the students who will be deprived of um, the sacraments and sacramentals, etc., in the school. In, as all this is um, litigated, uh, if the congregate, sorry, the dicastery does anything at all, and I think it will do this much, which is it will do exactly yeah, what it did by, probably right. by Indias, yeah. is they'll immediately say, we accept the recourse and we are suspending the decree while we consider. Yeah. So that basically while this thing is shoved onto the back burner and probably ignored by the dicastery who won't want to get involved, um, the, the status quo ante will be maintained at the school yeah. and there will be a suspensive effect imposed on the decree by the recourse. I think you're which right. Which is, according to the law itself, it's not, you know, right. a, when you appeal, it's a matter of procedural law in, the, in canon law, um, an appeal against a, an administrative decree like this has suspensive effect. That yeah. You, you know, you, you can't be made to do the thing that you're appealing being made to do while the appeal is ongoing. And I've kind of talked myself, you know, my initial thing was like, well, it's very, very unfortunate that the kids won't have the sacraments. And, and in a way it is, but I've sort of talked myself back from that to say, if there is a discordance between the ministry of the church and the sanctifying ministry of the church and the teaching ministry of the church, that formation is already, if that is true, which is the premise of the bishop, that formation is already a, you know, malformation. Um, yeah. And the bishop's effort here, you know, it seems to be, uh, the effort of the school seems to be to do the, the be in solidarity with our community, as they say, and they seem to think this is the right way to do it. The bishop's, um, uh, the bishop's intention here seems to be um, integrity between teaching and um, and sanctifying office, what you might call honestly Eucharistic coherence. That seems to be the bishop's intention here, um, and uh, and that is a, a goal that is that the church has said repeatedly is laudable. So, I, but I think you're right. I, I suspect that they're going to uh, I suspect they're going to suspend the effects of the decree and uh, backburner this, and um, and that will be it for a little while. I was looking to see the bishop of Worcester, Mass, Bishop McManus. Um, uh, is 70. So he, he's got some time to sort of see this sorted out and, um, you know, he's not immediately going anywhere either. Um, so there will be a little bit of time, I think, to see how this unfolds. Yep. Yep. Okay. We'll keep watching it. Another big thing happened this week. Ed, as I say, we've been busy and this thing that happened, I was on the phone with a friend the other day and talking with him about this and he, he was laughing, he was making fun of me. He said, only a canon lawyer would be so worked up about a rescript about 
the approval, the erection of a public juridic person uh, and a public association of the faithful by a diocesan bishop and Rome's involvement in that. But I was worked up because um, a significant thing happened in the life of the church this week that I think, if you read The Pillar, if you read Ed's newsletter today, Friday, or if you read some of our analysis on this this week, then you already know it's significant. But if you don't, you're wondering what we're talking about. Uh, earlier this week, the Holy See published a rescript um, which uh, which clarified um, or modified the law of the church, which said that diocesan bishops, if they wish to erect a public association of the faithful, which will um, become or which which is sort of on the trajectory of becoming a, an institute, a, a religious institute, must first receive the consent of the dicastery for. Uh, actually, I think it said congregation because they decided this in February, but must first receive the consent of the dicastery for Institutes of Consecrated Life and Societies of Apostolic Life, which is known by an acronym that I'm not going to say. Um, the uh, Dickel cell, J.D. <laughs> That's what it's called. So bishops who wish to approve a public association of the faithful, which is, with, which is being established with a view towards becoming a religious institute, um, cannot be erected without um, prior permission, a written license, as it were, from the um, congregation for the Dicastery for Institutes of Consecrated Life and Societies of Apostolic Life. This, uh, this is how something becomes a religious institute in the church, um, usually, something like this. A group of people come to the bishop, they say, we have some sense of a call or a charism to have a common life and a common apostolate, a common way of praying together. Um, we would like to form some sort of a, a religious institute. And 99% of the time, in my experience, the bishop probes and pokes a little bit, asks a few questions, and nothing comes of the thing. That is my experience. But every so often, a group of people come to the bishop and say, we would like to share some common apostolate and common life together and common prayer together. And uh, we would like your approval for that because we would like to become a religious Institute and um, the bishop says, "Okay, well, go ahead and um, spend some time living a common life." If the bishop is good, what he does, he says, "Go ahead and spend some time living a common life and praying together." And you're not religious yet; don't identify as brothers, but uh, or sisters or whatever. But better crystallize this life, and um, I will come and have dinner with you guys a few times. And this is where you should have mass, and these are some guidance on how you should pray. And let's talk about your charisma and your apostolate, and let's sort of get a sense, either through me or through my vicar for religious in a larger diocese, of of whether there's a something here, something from the Lord here." And if indeed there seems to be something from the Lord and the thing seems to grow a little bit and those kinds of things, the bishop might first help them to develop some governing documents. And perhaps first he would recognize them as something called a private association of the faithful, which is a kind of church corporation of relatively low status and importance. And if it continues to grow and there continues to be some indication that the Lord is blessing the thing and it has some charism from the Holy Spirit, he might then uh, erect it as a public association of the faithful. And at that point, the people would sort of act like religious because they're really saying, we have this community and let's see if it stands some test of time to grow enough to really become a full-fledged religious community. And uh, and if it grows and grows at a certain point, it used to be that the bishop could at a certain point um, consult with Rome, sort of ask the Holy See what they think, and then... Um, erect it as an institute of diocesan right. That would be the next step, an institute of diocesan right. Um, in 2020, it became the case that the bishop needed the permission of Rome, not to consult, but to get the permission of Rome to erect a religious, a would-be religious institute as an institute of diocesan right, sort of formally recognizing it as a religious order. This week, the law changed again so that the bishop needs the permission of Rome to take that step before, to kind of say, okay, there seems to be something here. You've been living together. Let's try this out and see if this kind of flourishes and see how it goes. Not fully fledged erect you as a religious institute, but some kind of intermediary step called a public association of the faithful. The, whole, the bishop now needs the permission of Rome to do that. Sounds kind of small, doesn't it? But when Ed and I read this, it struck us as a very 
very big deal. And Ed, at a 30,000 foot view level, in a nutshell, why does this seem like a big deal? Um, it doesn't seem like a big deal. Why is it, this a big deal? Thank you. It is a huge deal because what this fundamentally touches, and this has happened in a couple of other minor, similarly out of the way, kind of in the weeds canonical changes that we've seen in the last year and a bit. But what this does is it further acts to separate or pretend or assume or propose that there is a separation possible between the exercise of governance in the church and the 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 ministry of the bishop, the, the fullness of sacred orders. That there's always been an understanding in the in the theology and the ecclesiology and the practice of the law that there is in the office of the diocesan bishop this necessary unity between his governing function and his pastoral ministry. Right. And to separate those two and to basically say, well, yes, the bishop is the one who has sort of pastoral care of his diocese. He has, you know, all of these nice, um, you know, churchy sounding, you know, ways of engagement that you just outlined about discerning the vocation, seeing if there's a Holy Spirit present in this charism, helping it um, discern and flourish, and if necessary, help it along the way and to establish a more appropriate footing, saying, well, that's all nice, but actually for authority, you need the rubber stamp of Rome. He doesn't actually have as diocesan bishop the ability to, to act with validity, to discern over... To discern a matter um, of, sp of like spiritual goods and spiritual care and spiritual importance in his diocese. It, would, it struck me that it would be the same as the Holy See saying, before, accept, before accepting a candidate for orders, um, you know, a person to be ordained, mm -hmm. um, you need the, you need the consent of the congregation for clergy. I mean, it's, it, the analogy is perhaps not perfect, but I don't think it's that far off either. It's, no, it's the, it, it's, you're, you're talking about degree, not kind. Not kind, it's right, a, exactly. Mm -hmm. Um, and I mean, this is, I, the, the, the significance of this as a, and that's what this, all this is like, to be clear, the issue of diocesan bishops approving the erection of public associations of the faithful that might one day want to move towards becoming a religious congregation of some kind of diocesan right is itself a minor issue impacting a, you know a low visibility number of cases like it's not a pressing matter in the daily life of the church but the point here is the premise the what it means what this actually has to say about the ecclesiology of the church what it has to say about the nature of the office of diocesan bishop what it has to say about his consecration and this is not an issue that can be undersold in its importance. It suggests an ecclesiology or a theology of the episcopate that sort of the Second Vatican Council sought to correct. So before the Second Vatican Council, there was, uh, um, th there was, I think, an erroneous way of thinking about the episcopate, which thought that the bishop was essentially had the power that he had by sort of the concession or the conf of the or the the will of Rome that Rome sort of invested the bishop with authority to do certain things in his diocese and that his authority to be the shepherd of the local church really kind of came by grant of Rome. Well, the, the understanding explicitly rejected in Vatican II. They wrote this. Right. I mean, this is an actual sentence yeah. that the constitutions of the Vatican had to raise. Bishops are not vicars of the Roman pontiff. Right. Yeah. They are apostles in their own right. Yeah. They have all the power and autonomy necessary to govern their diocese. And yet, despite this being a key, a, I would argue, one of the most fundamental actual reforms of the Second Vatican Council, not the sort of fluffy spirit of Vatican II. Well, the real reform of the council was tambourines. Right. You know, the, uh, the actual written reforms of Vatican II, the actual priorities expressed in things like Christus Dominus, Lumen Gentium, 
you know, these actual documents is the rediscovery of the dignity and importance and autonomy of the diocesan yeah, bishop. Yeah, you take and a class on Vatican II that's immediately going to emerge to you as one of the themes. And the reason for that is it's it's meant to sort of be a counterweight. The first Vatican Council, which arguably a lot of what we're, a lot of the challenges in the church right now are because we have not sort of fully understood, integrated, unpacked, um, and and synthesized the first Vatican Council with the second, with, with the doctrine of the church which preceded it. The, but the First Vatican Council sort of focused on, emphasized, and expressed the primacy and authority uh, uh, of the papacy, which was an important thing to clarify. Um, the Second Vatican Council was aimed at a corrective, which um, so elevated the papacy that it sort of lost sight of the dignity of the diocesan bishop and the significance of the bishop as his successor to the apostle, the sort of spiritual, um, theological, pastoral, regnal, um, authority of the of the diocesan bishop, and so it was meant to begin a kind of counterweight. So the integration, the real sort of implementation of Vatican II on the sort of governing life of the church is integrating these important things that Vatican I says about the primacy of the Pope with this sort of counter-reminder of Vatican II in continuity with all the things that the church has taught before then, and a synthesis of all of those things. And honestly, Ed, I, we're not there. Where the church is, in my mind, honestly, is vacillating between the problems of a sort of extreme sort of papo maximalism, and then at times the problems of a sort of extreme papo minimalism that sees the sort of you know that 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 underappreciates the significance of the Pope. And I think that the the story of the last few decades of the Church has been vacillating wildly between those two things. Um, but this is one of those cases where you look at it and you think the underlying premise here seems to be that the bishop has the authority that the Holy See says it has, and that authority can be sort of um, pulled or pushed in you know, according to the will of the Holy See for practical reasons, rather than a sort of baseline recognition of the significance of the diocesan bishop's um, role in discernment and leadership um, and governance of his own particular church. Yeah, and again, it's not possible to overstate the significance of separating, which, again, this is one of a number of instances where it seems to be this is what is being affected uh, right now in various legal reforms to separate the sac the sacramental hierarchy from the practical governing power of the church is a huge deal like yeah. there is no the, the, again we're talking about you know differences in degree but not in kind like the idea that you could have a lay prefect of a roman congregation that enjoys um proper power proper governing power for themselves by virtue of their office telling a diocesan bishop we don't think that's a good idea what he may or may not do to govern the pastoral necessities of his diocese is in my mind a difference in degree but not in kind to the lay trusteeism crisis we had in this country uh, a century ago yeah it's or the to same that idea that i made of the congregation for clergy saying oh, you can't ordain that guy a priest yeah um it is true and if you've worked in the administrative life of the church for even three minutes or if you read the pillar for even two minutes, um, you will know that it is true that there is a pro that, that there are problems with the discernment of diocesan bishops in terms of the kinds of religious communities that they have approved and uh, helped to foster, that there are, you know, that there are a lot of dysfunctional erstwhile religious communities out there and a lot of people sort of running around as sort of quasi or pseudo-religious with the approval of some bishop who's largely negligent of his duties and sort of letting loose a person with the trappings of religious life into the church who may do grave harm. That, that is true. It's also true, as it happens, that some of the 
institutes that have been even recently, um, you know, by recently I mean in the past few decades, approved by the Holy See have been no less sort of problematic and, and, and deeply problematic. I believe, I could be wrong, but I believe the Legion of Christ, which is sort of example par excellence, was erected as an institute of pontifical right at some point. So it is also true that the Holy See is not great at, at, at this, but that is a problem to be solved, right? It is a problem to be solved that, that the church does not always properly discern whether or how to foster the possibility of religious congregation or exercise proper oversight or give proper formation to erstwhile religious communities. And we can all think of probably weird ones, and I can think of some which have visited upon people grave harm. That's true. And it seems that the Holy See's intention is if we centralize this, these things, if we require this permission at an early stage, we will nip in the bud the approval or erection of some erstwhile religious communities would be religious communities that are weird in a very problematic way. And that may be the case. The, the challenge, I think, is that good intention and maybe even that good outcome it has to be sort of weighed and sort of the course of action in the life of the church always has to be weighed according to like not what would work best, but what would work best in light of what we believe about who we are. And so um, that question, what do we believe about who we are? What do we believe about what it means to be a person always has to be sort of a consideration in terms of questions of morality. What do we believe about what it means to be a family? And in the governance of the church, what does it mean to be a diocese, a diocesan bishop, a pastor, um, you know, a metropolitan for that matter? These kinds of questions always have to be asked. In fact, you know, it's interesting at the time of the McCarrick scandal, there was this idea that many, many people had of a sort of lay national investigative team that would look into these kinds of things, uh, you know, look into allegations of essentially abuse, misconduct, or, or negligence on the part of diocesan bishops. And one of the strong lines that came from um, from some bishops in the United States and from Rome was like, well, that's not really ecclesial to have lay people sort of exercising sort of investigative authority over diocesan bishops. It's not really the way that we do things. It's not who we are. And so we're going to develop a system that is much more concretely connected to who we are, recognizing the dignity of the diocesan bishop, the structures that we have, the historic importance of the metropolitan. And so they came up with this metropolitan model of investigation, which is sort of enshrined in Vos Estes Lex Moody. Agree or disagree with that? The reasoning or the, the, the sort of the line of argumentation made, um, that's not who we are. Whether the premise is, is true or not, that's not who we are, is precisely a Catholic kind of premise in a, in a set of arguments about what we ought to do. And, uh, and here, you know, the reason why this is important is because the question has to be asked, is it who we are that the lay prefect of the Dicastery for Institutes of Consecrated Life and Societies of Apostolic Life can so sort of overrule the diocesan bishop in this kind of discernment or not? And does it reflect this correct sort of corrective emphasis placed in, in, in the Second Vatican Council, which the implementation of the Second Vatican Council is integrating that corrective emphasis into the church's own self-understanding and, self, and, and, and self-governance, way of living, um, uh, mode of living in accord with the historic teachings of the church, the things which were emphasized and declared in Vatican I, and then the things which were emphasized and declared as a point of sort of um, clarity um, and, uh, and rediscovery in Vatican II. And um, it seems like in any number of ways there is a, a, a lacuna here in, in, in those ways that to our way of thinking is important um, and, uh, and, and, and needs to sort of be recognized and thought carefully about. I entirely agree. I wouldn't go so far as to call it a lacuna. I would say <laughs> that um, this is... This is blowing a hole in the church's ecclesiology. And we talked, we've talked before about the influence of Father soon-to-be Cardinal Gerlanda. The, the, Gerlanda walks into a room. The 
storied and prolific jurist academic. Because he does, it's not the same room. I um, I'm not taking anything away from his his reputation as a you know as a professor of canon law or anything like that, but he has emerged as the as the man who said at the Vatican press conference at the promulgation of Predicati Evangelium, the power of governance of the church doesn't come from sacred orders; it comes from canonical mission. And again, if this becomes the ecclesiology of the church with regards to how governance is exercised, it is the most radical reform I can think of since Vatican I. Yeah. Since the since the uh, since the articulation of the of the doctrine of papal infallibility, like I, I honestly, I honestly, hand on heart, this would be the most radical um, articulation of a new way of thinking about the church since that. And the good news is, I mean, it is not an articulation. It is not um, an exercise of teaching. Governance is not an exercise of teaching authority in the church. Governance, which is fallible. Is um is is meant to be an application of the church's teaching authority. Well, it's and a separate munera. It is precisely. governing and teaching are two and, separate. And so, so my point is, this particular set of norms does not seem to either of us to reflect the church's uh, ecclesiology on this important point about the about the role and nature of the bishop. The good news is, governance can be wrong, right? I mean, decrees can be, norms, laws can well or poorly reflect the theology of the church and our need of reform when they don't and, and our need of sort of preservation when they do and those kinds of things. And so it is not sort of an existential crisis of, oh gosh, the church has sort of in an official way repudiated the theolo- her theology or denied her theology or doubled back on or something like that, because laws are a different kind of thing. But it is not a law which, as we read it, reflects this important emphasis that the Second Vatican Council was making and whose in, who's sort of implementation is supposed to be the project of the church right now in terms of governance, in, uh, apostolic mission and also governance. So it's important. It's very important. It's very important. Yeah. Well, Ed, there are many other things happening, but we need to take a break for this word from our sponsor. Ed, you sometimes ask me for a little parenting advice, and uh, I'm going to give you some unprompted right now if that is okay with you. Uh, please. Unsolicited advice is something I take very kindly to. Okay, here it is. Um, The formation of your uh, daughter as a Christian is, Ed, one of the most important things that you will do in your life. And um, the mistake that you could make, there are many, many mistakes that you could make, I have no doubt, but one mistake that you could make is to sort of think about the formation in faith as something which is segregated from the rest of life. So we do our thing, we play, we hang out in the yard, we go to the park, and then we have just a sort of segregated time of catechesis, which is sort of not integrated into the rest of our into the rest of our family life or into the rest of the way in which we're forming and teaching our children. The faith is meant to be taught in a way so that it permeates everything so that a child can be sort of formed with a full, authentic, real, and holistic Christian worldview. And that's my important advice to you. I appreciate that. I, it was the Didache that said there are only two ways, the way of life and the way of death. So when it comes time to choose um, some mode of the transmission of education for your daughter, Ed, whether that means a Catholic school or whether that means an approach to homeschooling or whether that means some other approach to education, one very important consideration is the degree to which the faith is integrated into every aspect of learning and every aspect of human and personal formation as well. That's It's really important, I think, as a parent to find a way that the faith is not just sort of religious education class, religion class, but something which um, goes far more into that, into the way that a child is formed to think about history and science and literature um, and politics and, and all things. Yeah, yeah, I, I absolutely agree. I mean, the uh, this is the very definition of um, of a Catholic approach to to study and to learning this, this idea of a holistic... I mean, 
the we have the church is the one that coined the phrase fides et ratio that these Indeed. things go hand in hand that we have to have the unity of the rational and the spiritual that the the two complement each other the one um inspires the other in both directions that you know we are we are all fides squarens intellectum jd we are all faith seeking understanding and we also at a certain point have to turn our rational intellect towards the the seeking of faith and to see that every proper inquiry whether it be a human inquiry a scientific inquiry or a religious inquiry all inquiries really are asking questions of the divine in one way or another indeed ed the sponsor of this week's episode of the pillar podcast is seton home study school and seton home study school is an accredited school that aims to help parents to teach their children in a way where in which the faith permeates all of their coursework, all of the material that they receive, not just religion. Um, the, Seton, the Seton Home Study School curriculum offers sacred art throughout its curriculum. It offers, uh, it has students um, practice handwriting through scripture passages, or when they're working on grammar, it has them use the stories of the lives of the saints to work on understanding better grammar and construction. Um, religion courses in the Seton Home Study School are very robust, but the faith is meant to permeate through the instruction of all subjects. I can well see why that is Probably the the most authentically Catholic mentality to approach education with. And here's another thing. The Seton Home Study School is not just a kind of distance Catholic school. It's a publisher of its own Catholic textbooks, which are meant to be integrated together. And it is an entire school curriculum, an an accredited school uh, with about 17,000 enrolled students who are um, homeschooled by their parents, the primary educators of their children, but with help from Seton, help in everything from lesson plans to academic counselors um, to grading, uh, all of the things that a homeschooler might sort of need help with or that might make homeschooling uh, easier, beginning with a comprehensive and integrated curriculum. To find out if Seton Home Study School is right for your family, um, check it out at setonhome.org. That's setonhome.org. Check out Seton Home Study School and see if it is the right approach for the formation of your children. We are going to change gears um, and do something that I've been excited about uh, well, I guess um, since yesterday when we thought of it. Um, for hours, but, um, J.D. You've been excited for hours. For hours. I, I, I'll be honest. I woke up excited about this. And um, and the reason is because we have uh, a guest uh, on the podcast. Not really a guest on the podcast because um, we have uh, a member of our own team on the podcast. We are joined now by our own um, uh, contributing editor and data guru extraordinaire, um, the man who knows that two plus two never equals five, uh, Brendan Hodge. Brendan, what's doing? Hey, it's great to be on the show again. And now that I said that, I'm worried that you or some statistical geek is going to explain to me some complex theorem by which two plus two could mathematically, mathematically or arithmetically equal five. Is there ever any possibility of that being? A thing? Uh, you know, I would, to be honest, be the wrong person for that in that, uh, okay. keep in mind, I haven't actually taken any math classes beyond high school. I just do a lot of computer work. <laughs> so, uh, Yeah. <laughs> Are you sure you're not a theologian? (laughs) Brendan is both a professional... I am a a classics major originally, so I mean... That's what I I was going to say. You're a professional statistician, effectively, or something along those lines. You build models, you build data models for complex pricing algorithms at work all day, and then you do our kind of statistical stuff, and you're a classics major. I mean, you really ought to just be like reading Ovid and working at a Starbucks or something, right? Uh, Yeah, but you know, it doesn't pay. (laughs) No, that's... 
I've heard that. And then people super glue themselves to the counter and it's all messy in these days. Yeah, yeah. So I thought I would go into, you know, the, the wild and wealthy area of Catholic media. That's logical, right? Well, um, what I find interesting, it it, it is wild. Uh, you've gotten you've gotten one of those. It is wild. But what I find interesting about classics majors is just in general, uh, it seems to me that one element of being a classics major is being an autodidact and therefore being able to pick up any number of like fascinating um marketable um skills or um sort of uh very interesting ways of looking at the world even subsequent to having spent a lot of time talking about the Aeneid or what have you yeah i mean a little bit of my pitch is that one of the interesting things about ancient languages and there'd probably be a whole sidetrack about this is that a lot of ancient languages actually have more complex and formal grammatical structures than modern languages it's like we simplify the way that we speak over time and yeah. uh, if you can master... We are master, getting dumber as a species. That's, yeah. That's yeah, true. You know, uh, we're getting dumber, but carrying supercomputers in our pockets. But... Um, the two but are not so, unrelated. <laughs> probably not. Uh, no, that's definitely... I think that's definitely But true. so my, my thought is, if you can master Greek and Latin grammar and, and sort of bend your minds around those, picking up a computer language or a database structure is not sure. that hard. And so I actually know several people who went on in classics who then sort of swerved and went into computers. So one of my friends got her PhD in classics, uh, failed to get a tenure track position, started programming computer games in her spare time and ended up the CEO of a small game development company uh, doing kind of wow. AI-driven computer games. Uh, and, wow. um, it, and and I do know, you know several other people who've gone from classics into computers. So it, it's not a totally crazy path to follow. That makes a ton of sense to me because I I um um I have no Greek. The only Greek I have, I suppose, is is uh, is is uh, Kyrie eleison, as it were. Um, but um, I do have a little a, a little bit of Latin um, in my club bag there, and I have often told people that um, effectively studying Latin, at least at the beginning of learning Latin, is much closer to learning math than learning um or can feel much closer to, to learning math than to sort of learning a language by sort of immersion you know like where you just sort of sitting at the dinner table trying to figure out how to have someone to pass you the peas instead you're sort of learning about the way in which this you know these various elements sort of synthesize together to do different things yeah it does starting out with cla- classical language languages does kind of wire your brain differently in terms of language acquisition because having i studied latin in high school which is how i ended up in classics in college and, uh, and then when you try to learn a modern language, your first thought is, well, okay, if you could just give me a table showing all the verb forms and all the noun forms, and I will start by memorizing that, and then you can talk to me about vocabulary and so on. That is not how any modern language course is designed, and it's not right. even a very good way to learn a modern language, but it's yeah. just how you've done things now, and, and your brain is a little twisted. And it's also... it, it um the the desire for that in the in the acquisition of a language points to the reason why English, with its um, many many irreg- enough irregularities to make irregularity the sort of regular condition of the language, um, such a difficult language for people who are who are not English um, native English language speakers to to learn, especially if they come from a far more organized language. Do you know what's interesting is people actually um, report that it's much easier to learn English not if you're a gifted linguist necessarily, but if you're musical. Hmm. Oh, yeah. Why is that, Ed? It's not true. I just made it up. But it seems it seems intuitive, right? Like, <laughs> no, it doesn't seem intuitive at all. Actually, I don't know what that means. Well, it was clearly believable. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, well, this this is what happens when Brendan comes on the show. This I just is, wanted to contribute. I, no, you did a great you did a great job, buddy. I'm very. I did Hebrew for a semester at undergrad. 
You know, I um, took a semester of Hebrew. I think we've talked about this on the show before. I audited a semester of Hebrew uh, as an undergrad. And then um, the professor, who was a guy, I'd taken a lot of classes with him. He was a scripture teacher at our, at our alma mater. Brendan and I went to the same college. And the professor, um, actually about halfway through the semester, came to me and said, you know, you can fail an audited class. I just wanted to sort of let you know that. <laughs> Which I was glad, because I didn't know that, and I had to get a little more serious. But... It was also about that time that JD realized he'd been reading Hebrew backwards. Right, exactly, exactly. With the speed of summer lightning, as it were. Um, oh wait, no, that's right. actually to um, be honest. Okay. At this point, Ed's Latin is probably better than mine. I've heard his extemporaneous translations on the show, and I don't know that I could pull it off anymore. I have an extremely limited. Actually, my my Latin and my Italian are almost the same in this regard, which is, it's very very particular. I I can I can read Latin well if it is a liturgical text if it is you know the breviary or if it's a canonical text. If you tried to have me read Cicero, I would I would quickly run dry. But you keep up on your Latin. You it, you have this good habit of reading the code, which is a document that we read a great deal. You you have this great habit of reading it first in Latin before you look at the English, and so you just you you, you do the thing which is you exercise the muscle that you have, and that's important. Last the, night, the code and the breviary. That's yeah. actually the breviary does better for ah. me because it's constantly changing what I'm reading. You know, the code you can just memorize the canon eventually, but I mean, reading the breviary, you get a new saw, a new series of psalms every day, a new hymn, all that stuff. Ed sent me. It was like eleven o'clock at night my time last night, and I had had a very long day and a couple of drinks. And Ed sent me last night like a five-page Italian letter, and uh, was just like, uh, "Can you believe this?" And I was like, "Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna need to read it tomorrow with a dictionary because I." <laughs> the moment I can believe it, and he's like, "It's all right." Uh, it was. I was very impressed by your your late night Italian parsing. That was very. Uh, uh, actually, this is true of the two languages that I'm not conversant in, but have some ear for, which is both Italian and French. Which is my fluency increases exponentially with how much I've had to drink. Ah, uh, yeah, your perception. I, I am nearly fluent in French after the third bottle of wine. Well, this is what this always happens when we have Brendan. We have had Brendan on the show before, and um, what always happens when we have Brendan on the show is he's just Brendan is just interesting as hell. And so, um, what happens is we have him on, and we start talking about something which is not the thing which we had him on to talk about. And uh, and and while I'm glad about that, I I want to move the conversation to the reason why Brendan is here, and it's because uh, Brendan, you kind of um, you, I I hate to use the vernacular on this because it's so crass, but. Brendan, you uh, went viral this week on the internet. You um, you made a series of tweets on um, on 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 Twitter, which is a social networking uh, website, a sort of micro blogging social networking website. If you're not uh, up to speed on that sort of thing, but Brendan made a series of tweets, which are sort of like micro posts on this website. Brendan made a series of tweets that um, described his work um, uh, as a as the as the former pricing manager for Wendy's, a fast food restaurant, and you did so kind of in response to this sort of guy who had made a set of tweets that went viral suggesting that McDonald's profits were um, like uh, suggesting a whole bunch of things about McDonald's profits and their um, relationship to labor that you thought were not uh, at all realistic. And so you sort of brought your expertise to pop this uh, fellow's balloon and it really kind of blew up. Is that, is that right? Yeah. It, um, there was a a fellow who's an avowed communist. So I guess that sort of underlines his level of economic analysis who had posted a thread that had gone to like hundreds of thousands of shares uh about uh basically that he thought that um if you looked at the price of a mcdonald's hamburger and uh what mcdonald's people are paid 
that uh, obviously two thirds of the value of uh, the McDonald's hamburger was being stolen by ownership and uh, things would be so much better if uh, it was correctly distributed. And so uh, I, I was the corporate pricing manager for Wendy's from 2010 to 2012, which means I set the prices for the company store menus, which is about 20% of the stores. And then I would present recommendations to the franchisee board on how they should price their menus. And, uh, and I presume that franchisees, which make up 80% of Wendy's restaurants, probably followed, for the most part, the corporate recommendations on prices. In general, yeah. So in when when you have a fast food chain, you have a few things that are kind of rules because they're associated with marketing. So for instance, at Wendy's, mm-hmm. they have their two for five menu where you can buy uh, certain pairs of certain items or mix and match two of a, uh, certain uh, off a certain list of items for $5. And that's something which is nationally advertised. And because it's nationally mm-hmm. advertised, the franchisees have to comply with it. Uh, you might have mm-hmm. an airport store or something like that, which doesn't comply, but you, you really want to comply with the national advertising. Uh, and also uh, having things on the value menu. So things priced at 99 cents, $1.99, et cetera, those you kind of want to comply with so that people, when they show up at a Wendy's anywhere in the country, will know that they can always find their value drink for 99 cents, for instance. But other than that, they have... Junior bacon cheeseburger, for example. We're going to come back. We're going to have a big conversation about the junior bacon cheeseburger. (laughs) We're going to come back to that, but I don't want to take Brendan too far off the track of of, uh, of his moment of um, virility. Not virility, that's another... (laughs) Brendan has like about 37 kids, so that's another conversation, but his moment of viralness... Um, so, uh, go ahead, Brendan. So you, so, um, so you kind of responded to this communist. Yeah. So what I laid out is that if you're going to run, uh, what the industry calls itself a quick service, uh, restaurant, a QSR, uh, or, or a fast food location, uh, your basic rule of thumb is that, um, you need to keep your food costs. So the percent of your revenue that goes to cover the cost of the actual food that you're handing people down to around 30%. Um, and the reason is because another 30% of your revenue is going to go to cover labor and another 30% is going to go to cover site costs. So site costs are things like the lease on the store, uh, your uh, your franchise fee, uh, insurance, taxes, uh, like all these things that relate to just running a physical location. Labor is pretty and, obvious. And the equipment and stuff like that, exactly. right? I mean, I presume like just yeah, having the kitchen equipment. The equipment to a great extent is a capital expense. So when you go to open a... Uh, a franchise, you're expected to sink like $2 million, $2.5 million into mm-hmm. getting the store set up in the first place. So you've... You, but they do they book depreciation annually against that equipment? Uh, from an accounting point of view, yes. Uh, realistically, if, if you're thinking about this from like the franchisee's like checkbook point of view, he's put in yeah. that big investment. And then what he's going to be trying to do is make about, at, at best, about a 10% profit uh, from his uh, from his sales uh, each year. So it's going to yeah. take him 10 years to make back his investment in setting up that store. Um, he, he'll show an operational profit each year, but he will have maybe taken out loans to make those capital investments. And so he'll be paying back on those loans yeah. and so on. Wow. But can you put a price on having your own Wendy's? <laughs> uh, I mean, you can. They, there is a uh, franchise fee of about $45,000 uh, and uh, a initial investment of about $2.6 million. On the other hand, I mean, naming a dominant fast food chain after your daughter, priceless. Exactly. I, I, I'm sure that you could also ascribe a, a weight to the human soul if you wanted to, Brendan. But I'm, I'm speaking at a more spiritual level here. And the knowledge that it is your Wendy's and you can have the secret menu whenever you want 
Um, I think the say, very point of the secret menu is that anyone who knows what it is can have it whenever they... Well, so want I want to ask, this is my question, is you, you talked about pricing recommendations. Did you did you price the secret menu or is that was that completely ad hoc? Um, like you, the price of a meat cube, is that um, <laughs> is that something that is centrally recommended or... Um, no, I never presented a recommendation for the price of a meat cube. And to be honest, uh, that must be a very secret menu because I did not know about a meat cube. You, you are familiar with, is the bacon, you know, you're familiar with the bacon double cheeseburger, obviously. Yes. The Baconator. Yeah. Right. A meat cube is a Baconator in which they have stacked Baconator upon Baconator double patties with bacon to the point where it forms a cube of meat. I, oh, okay. I think you're getting three doubles is is what it works out to. Now, that's interesting, Ed, because there must be some regional variability here. I'm on a website called hackthemenu.com, which is suggesting that the meat cube is um, a Dave's Hot and Juicy quadruple. So that would be four beef patties on a Wendy's bun. That equals a, a pound of meat, a cubic, a cubic, uh, I don't know what the dimensions are, but a pound of meat. Yeah. Yeah. There, so there, there must, must be reason. Yeah. They need to centralize this. I mean, this I can cause all kinds of confusion. Brendan, you left work undone at Wendy's. This, this is a kind of healthy... <laughs> we were talking about decentralization before. This is the kind of healthy centralization that is critical, is the centralization you of the Wendy's You need to know you cube. can get your cube of Baconator and how much it will cost you at any given moment. I, I feel strongly about this. Indeed. So, Brendan, so basically this I was... This probably gets the whole question of, like, synodality. I mean, should uh, should the, the number of, and design of bacon cheeseburgers be de- decided locally or centrally, and how should that flow up and down within the community of QSR? I would love to go to a synod of fast food customers, just like Wendy aficionados all in Community would break down so mom, quickly. Mom. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We would just have to accompany them through the drive-thru repeatedly. <laughs> so, so Brendan, did I hear you correctly that it, ta- that a fran- it takes a... F- I mean, when I think about a franchise owner, basically I think about the boss in Coming to America. And, um, and, uh, and that guy was doing pretty well for himself. Um, but did I hear you say basically that it takes 10 years for a, f- a typical fast food franchise to become profitable once it pays back its sort of investment costs? Its sort of investment costs? That's kind of surprising. Um. Depending on how you're thinking about it, yeah. I mean, some of this is, has to do with sort of how you how you think about the accounting because uh, a good location should be operationally profitable from year one, meaning yeah. that it it, co- it produces more revenue than it costs to run it. But yes, there's a sig- significant investment on the front side. It, it is a long-term game running franchises. And so in a lot of cases, I mean, you'll have people who will draw on friends and family a, a lot of franchisees are either sort of people who have been in the restaurant business for generations or you have uh, a lot of immigrants who get into this because it's something where if you can kind of pool family resources and get your first franchise uh where you really start to sort of snowball is if you can uh then get additional franchises because the the work that it takes to do the administration for one restaurant is not that different from the administration to do two or three or four. So mm. you can start to kind of become more efficient as you're running larger numbers. And so um, people will try to, to kind of roll that to getting additional franchises. And uh, by the time that they're running several, they're kind of pooling the profits off those different ones and paying off their investments and so on. But yeah, it is um, franchise. This is not a short term investment. Franchisees are in this for the 20 to 30 year time frame. That's really. I don't have that kind of time. No, I know. I want. I need money. I need, like, if I were to launder money at my at my um, Wendy's yeah. franchise, or if I had like 
I mean, it seems to me that maybe I could have like a, I live in Colorado, so it seems to me that with the right licensing, I could have a sort of secret, secret menu, which combines sort of the best of what Colorado offers legally with um, a bag of fast food. And I feel like that would make me a lot of cash. I have to be honest. I I mean, I think the other thing you could do for the the broader life of the church is that you could have the the Betchui secret uh, menu. Oh, and you can wow. maybe look at some Vatican finance investment in a franchise opportunity. Wow. You guys have a lot of experience in this area. They did invest in a highway in North Carolina that didn't exist. So didn't exist. I would so, think that a Wendy's franchise would be an improvement on that. Yeah, Or a Phantom Roy Rogers or something. Man, Roy Rogers was so good. I wish you worked at Roy Rogers, Brendan. What the hell? Um, here's my question. Um, it seems to me... <laughs> 18 minutes of preamble. Here's my question. <laughs> And wait for it, because it's not going to be... It seems to me that a baked potato... I mean, Wendy's is, I think, the only fast food restaurant that I can think of that offers a baked potato. But it seems to me that a baked potato is a profit machine, because a potato is not expensive. You already have a presumably hot thing in which you're cooking it. And, like, you know, how how costly is sour cream and some chipped up bacon, right? Uh, so the, the potatoes are, uh, are fairly profitable. Um, the best value in terms of potatoes is that uh, at some locations they have a, a basic just sour cream and chive potato, which is on the value menu. Mm-hmm. And so if you're thinking about kind of your calories per dollar, especially in an age where meat prices have taken a lot of the sandwiches off, if you can get hold of a, a value sour cream and chive potato, that's that's a pretty good value on the menu there. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, one of the great things about potatoes from an operational point of view is uh, so that um, to get the, the skins a little bit crispy, they'll actually butter the outside a little bit and then wrap it in foil. And then it goes in the oven there and it can actually stay in there for quite a while. So one of the things that makes uh, hamburgers tricky is you want to have a hamburger ready to slap together and hand to a customer as they come through the drive through, which means you have to already have the patty on the grill. And so you have a rate at which you are grilling patties in anticipation of the customers oh, coming. Sure. But if that patty sits on the grill too long, then you're going to have to discard it because it'll get dried out and not fun anymore. So uh, Wendy's solution to that is that those uh, discarded patties can actually be broken up and put into the chili, which means that you are not throwing meat away. Oh. Um, so that's that's a significant upside to the chili, which is another Wendy's unique kind of offering. You yeah. can't get chili at McDonald's or Burger King. Right. But uh, both the chili and the potatoes are things that sit around uh, for longer periods and you don't have to throw them away. Yeah. And uh, so that's that's an advantage in terms of profitability. So, so the chili for Wendy's is sort of serving... In, in a certain way, like the traditional role of a big soup pot in a in a in a family home of just like in go the scraps, um, the the chili is a is a certain kind of catch all because I I wonder are the tomatoes in the chili cut up from the leftover sort of sandwich fixins as well? No, everything else in the no. chili is kind of it, it's prepackaged. It comes in a bag, and you may have to add additional ground beef if you don't have enough uh, hamburgers that are coming off. But it is a way that you can avoid just throwing away patties that that sit on the grill too long and obviously that um i mean if you're thinking about sort of not having our uh, throwaway culture then uh chili would probably be a pope francis favorite yeah so it's sort of the the chili is the laudato si order of the fast like if you're going to get in your car and drive to a place where you drive through a menu to get you know, you know drive through a drive through to get something served to you in a lot of plastic packaging and you want to be environmentally conscious the chili is the thing Exactly. Yeah. So you could take your Tesla through uh, the drive-through and get chilly. Oh, I feel like you're really good is, about yourself. Th- th- there's there's a there's a possibility here. There should be some sort of uh, marquee social justice event organized by the um, by the 
Texas Catholic Conference, all the bishops of the state of Texas, and they should have a chili cook-off, and they should invite the Holy Father. Um, yeah. Because then you could you could tick several of the boxes that of things he likes or should like, like social justice and chili, um, and, and you could show him uh, probably a part of the United States that he hasn't seen before. And I, I, I wonder if he'd come. Maybe he would. He says he wants to go to Kazakhstan in September. So, I mean, this is... This is a pope who likes to likes to move around. I have been thinking about Francis and Athanasius Snyder in the cathedral rectory in Kazakhstan for as long as the pope has been saying he wants to go to Kazakhstan because I just smell sitcom. To be perfectly honest, that would be a great show. Like that comic strip, doesn't it? Yeah, right. Exactly. That would be a great show. Yeah. Guess who's Uh, coming to dinner? Papal edition. Exactly. (laughs) I was thinking more like the Odd Couple, but (laughs) Brendan, tell. just tell us some more interesting stuff about. We have a little game and everything, and and uh, but just everybody lo- everybody loves your work at the pillar. You're working on some very interesting stuff right now. You're building a kind of big dashboard of many many statistics um, uh, about um, the about the life of the church and much data about the life of the church in the United States. That's a really cool project, and you're doing some other projects, and it's kind of a family project because you have your daughter sort of helping you with a lot of data entry this summer. But as much as I want to hear about that, just tell us some other cool stuff about Wendy's. Um. So. Something that just tickled me because it's not the sort of thing that you would think about is uh, when I was there, they had kind of a menu revitalization going on to uh, kind of bring bring things over time. You sometimes you cut corners a little bit in order to to try to save costs. And so they they decided to go back and, and have an initiative to bring the Wendy's menu back up to the level that they believed it should be at. So this included things like they put a butter toaster into each location so the bun would get would go on a little conveyor belt, would get dipped in a little uh, pool oh of melted butter, God. and then it would go through a toaster, so you'd have a butter-toasted bun. Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, I'm opposed- sorry. Are these machines available for private purchase? <laughs> right, I, want, <laughs> I want butter machines. I, I want that. Yep. Uh, and uh, as I recall, it wasn't a super high capital investment. You should look into it. I will remove um, the oven from my home and install that <laughs> instead. I, I was unaware technology had moved this far. This is amazing. Uh, but the uh, one of the elements here was that uh, they had gone to using white onions on the Dave's Hot and Juicy hamburgers. So if you think about uh, the other place, uh, McDonald's, they use chopped white onions. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you have just sort of a sprinkling of chopped onions. Wendy's has always used actual rings of onions, so a slice of onion that goes on there. Uh, but they were using white onions, and they decided after some taste tests that red onions would be more appropriate for the Dave's Hot and Juicy hamburgers. Um, but apparently Wendy's is a large enough consumer of onions in the U.S. agricultural market as a whole. They had to alert U.S. growers and get them to plant new fields, uh, switch whole fields over from white onions to red onions. Wow. So they had to give them two years notice in order to get sufficient red onions available mm. that they could switch over all the Wendy's hamburgers from white onions to red onions. And, and that was just fascinating to me because, I mean, you think of if you want to buy red onions, you just go to the store and buy red onions. You don't think of the necessity of informing a farmer, hey, I would really like red onions. Could you please plant some more red onions for me? But apparently they are just a big enough player in the onion space that they had to work all the way back to the farmers and tell them to grow more red onions. That's really cool. I mean, that's... this is the best show we've ever done. I know. I know. By a long, long way. Yeah, I th- I think wow, that's really something. So, um you after uh after you worked at Wendy's, uh, you worked like first um Scotts, right? The like fertilizer and such 
company. Is that right? Uh, yes. I left Wendy's and went to Scott's miracle Grow, uh, which has lawn fertilizer, grass seed, uh, potting soil, plant food, uh, ortho, pest and garden controls. Uh, they sell Roundup for the consumer market. So a lot of different kind of garden products. And you set the prices for those things. I mean, that's just, yes, this, I did. you just, dude, doesn't everybody just think Brandon's a lot cooler than this me? Is, I mean, this is okay, the point that I'm trying to get at. I mean, just like... I, I think we've made that point. Yeah, okay, great. Okay, people... <laughs> but, but now we have to destroy his credibility. Yeah, but now, I mean, in as much as you thought that Brendan... Because, I mean, what what the whole premise of Brendan sort of going viral, Brendan's virality, like, I realize that that's how I should pronounce that, Brendan's virality. Again, Brendan's virality is not what we're here to talk about. Brendan's virality, though, the whole point of it was that so many people, I think, really responded to, okay, here's this... There was this guy popping off on Twitter about the... You know, there was a communist trying to talk yeah, about, about market like, economics. Oh, the capitalists are, you know, and and uh, and a lot of people, of course, sort of like that because it confirmed their biases or whatever. But then I think the reason why Brendan's um, sort of response, which was a reasonable thread about how the pricing of the pricing and profiting and, and profit of a fast food restaurant works, is because like here's a guy with real expertise, sort of just unpacking things in a very dispassionate way. It's actually kind of, uh, it, it struck me, Brendan, and I hope you won't mind me saying this, as a very pillaresque way to approach something because it's just like, oh, here are a lot of people with hot takes and we are just going to bring you something called the facts. And uh, and that's unique to people and people love that And um, because it's it's rare. I mean, everyone wants to sort of bring you the facts colored by things and you just sort of laid them out, which I thought was awesome. I mean, Brendan, wouldn't you say that basically the premise of your um, your your amazing online popularity this week was basically your expertise about Wendy's? That that did seem to be what was driving it. Okay, well, we are going to test that, um, Brendan. We are not a hundred percent sure that you really have an expertise about Wendy's. So we're going to play a little game called "Which Wendy Am I," um, in which I am going to. Um... <laughs> Ed, you look shocked. Are we not going to discuss? That Brendan's the man who killed the junior bacon cheeseburger. I, we're oh, just going to let that that's right. go. We do, we do want to talk about that. So, so I don't think Brendan is the guy who killed the junior bacon cheeseburger. But there was a little backlash to Brendan's expertise on Twitter because, in addition to Brendan having expertise about these things, he can, he admitted that he was the guy who took something called the junior basic bacon classic um, off the uh, off the dollar menu. I don't I don't eat fast food. You wouldn't know it to look at me, but I don't eat fast food. It's been probably about ten years since I ate fast food. But I can think of what a junior basic bacon classic tastes like right now because it was perfect. Patty, cheese, bacon, lettuce, mayo, bun. I think that's the whole of it. Is that right, Brendan? Uh, yes. It was a perfect little sandwich. And it used to be on the dollar menu, which means that you could get like about 12 of them for, well, $12. But um, <laughs> you, Brendan, t- you, that you was You killed of, it, Brendan. You killed it. I mean, you, is that right? Well, so what, what happened at that time is uh, during that period when I was there, the cost of bacon started to escalate significantly. The cost uh, of bacon is too damn high. This is... This is known. This this is a problem in our society. Yes, um, and uh, it's it's killing us, not just the pigs. So uh, the junior bacon cheeseburger has a single full size strip of bacon on it, cut in half, and so two half pieces of bacon on it. And uh, as I mentioned, your your goal with a, a fast food location is to have about thirty percent overall food cost in order to remain profitable. And the junior bacon cheeseburger was approaching 70% food costs. So just the cost Whoa. of the bacon in particular, plus the cheese and the beef, it was getting too high. It was no longer possible to sell it for $1, but it was the single most popular sandwich on the 99 cent menu. Because people know so, a value. Right. So what we did is we ran a, a series of tests. Uh, so we used some software where we would identify uh we would take a couple of test markets for each store. We would look at stores that had very similar demographics near them, very similar selling patterns. 
Um, and so we would establish control stores uh, for each test store. So we, we had these these test markets. And in one set of markets, we took the Junior Bacon Cheeseburger up to $1.29 and one up to $1.49 uh, and in another up to $1.79. And we looked at what happened to the sales in the store when we took these increases. Um, and this sort of testing control, we would look at the test stores that made the price changes compared to the control stores that continue to offer the JVC at 99 cents. And how many of those stores, the test stores, were burned down by angry mobs? <laughs> uh, none. None. So the, the, well, I burned uh, down the at least three, so is, I don't think that's true. Uh, <laughs> uh, the, the interesting thing from a pricing point of view is that you have uh, you have sort of a, a split in the behavior. So like I mentioned, the, the Junior Bacon Cheeseburger was the single most popular item on the value menu. Uh, when it moved off the value menu, when it moved over a dollar, uh, about half of those units went away. So uh, only half as many people were buying the Junior Bacon Cheeseburger. However... Almost all of those uh, sales were picked up by either uh, the double stack, which was a uh, a sandwich with two two mini patties with a piece of cheese in between them, but no bacon um, and no lettuce and tomato, or the the deluxe junior hamburger, which was just um, meat, cheese, and lettuce and tomato, but no bacon, because bacon was sort of our big problem at that time. So. Uh, what we saw was that we still sold the same number of total sandwiches. It was just that uh, some people were really attached to the price point and some people were really attached to the junior bacon cheeseburger itself. Mm. And uh, what we ended up doing over the course of the next year was moving uh, the recommended price all the way up to $1.79 on that sandwich because once it went over over 99 cents, the people who stuck oh. with it as the price went up were actually willing to pay up to $1.79 there was not much of a difference between charging $1.29 for it and $1.79. So we were able to bring it kind of in line with what the cost of food was. While, um, while people who were really attached to the price point would buy one of those sandwiches that did not have bacon. Wow. I'll be damned. I mean, cool. That's really, huh? But it was, it was a beautiful and special time back when you could buy a junior bacon cheeseburger for 99 cents. And I think all of us would agree that it is, it is a great lack in society that we can no longer do that. And I told a friend that I would also ask you about the Wendy's Spicy Nugs. Do you have anything to say about Wendy's Spicy Nuggets? Um, I don't, actually. Uh, I think you mentioned that your local store, you had not seen them anymore. I, I had not realized that they were gone. They were certainly still going strong when I was there. But um, as I recall, I think the Spicy Nuggets actually sold a bit more than just their regular crispy nuggets. Sure. Uh, but Wendy's is the uh, the major chain that has both spicy and regular nuggets. Uh, whereas at uh, McDonald's Burger King, you can only get standard nuggets. Yeah. How do you think Taco Bell um, sources, like Taco Bell has a sourcing problem, it would seem to me, because they have to buy so much like literal garbage and crap to put into their food that it just seems like that would be difficult. I mean, the Taco Bell metric of just like, how do we cram disgusting stuff into a tortilla must be a totally different equation. Is that is that so? Uh, to be honest, we, despite the fact that um, several of the people that I worked with in marketing at Wendy's were people who had been at Yum! Brands, which runs Taco Bell, mm -hmm. uh, we didn't really consider them a competitor. And so I didn't track their, <laughs> um, their products in my surveys at all. Wow. That's... We tracked people who sold hamburgers. Wow. That is, I, I love that. Okay. Um, and I... Chick-fil-A, because Chick-fil-A is sort of, I mean, chicken sandwiches are actually becoming a more and more important part of fast food, even though you might think of these as hamburger chains. 
um, the chicken sandwiches really are a, a significant portion of the business. And so you, you definitely track Chick-fil-A. And Chick-fil-A, well. it would seem to me, well, maybe even this came after your time at Wendy's, but has had something of a meteoric rise. Have they not? Oh, they, they were very much on the radar then. Um, I, I may have done a few extra, um, company card visits to chick-fil-a just to make sure that i had thoroughly <laughs> researched the menu Good uh but well, the, um, the, the real price the, as i understand it the real re- reason for the rise in popularity of chick-fil-a was it presented the first credible alternative to the mcdonald's fish sandwich which of course is trash and no one should eat but because it's only chicken you can eat it on fridays Hmm. Again, Ed has very, very, very unusual understandings of fat, canonical fasting. And I have heard from so many seminarians over the last year basically saying like, our rector said we can't follow Ed's norms for what to eat on um, on <laughs> solemnities and when Ed thinks solemnities begin. So we're just going to move right past that because it is time. It is time to talk, to talk with Brendan, to, to find out if Brendan actually has expertise in Wendy's with a little game that Ed and I like to call, What Wendy Am I? I'm going to ask the questions. If you need to phone a friend um, and ask Ed for help, you're welcome to. But I think you're going to do great on this. So, um, so buckle up, Brendan, is what I'm saying. All right. I'm on the edge of my seat. Okay. I am the Wendy responsible for introducing the name Wendy, um, which was once only a particular English person's family nickname into the popular nomenclature. I am the Wendy responsible for introducing the name Wendy into the popular nomenclature at all. Which Wendy am I? Uh, well, that would be the Wendy in Jam Berry's play Peter Pan and the novel of the same name. That is correct. But I, Brendan, you're a man of letters, and I expected that you would be able to give me a little bit more than the Wendy in the play and be able to tell me her name. Uh, oh, Ed is champing uh, at the bit Wendy here. Darling? Wendy Darling it is. Well done. Ed, you no, have something to say. Well, her, her full and proper name is Wendy, quote unquote, Moira Angela. That's right. It is Wendy Moira Angela Darling. And I only know that from Hook, actually. Oh, Hook is a good film. There's, that's, that, that, was, that was an underrated 90s under, film. Yeah, underrated totally film. Good. Yeah, okay. It the, did have about three endings, but aside from that. Yeah, that's right. Um, we had Probably several, Dustin Hoffman's best performance, though. We had actually two copies of the, of the Hook VHS because I got... Um, do you remember... I feel like I've talked about this on the show before, but do you remember the 90s chip pizzerias? No. No. Oh, pizzerias were an, were an amazing, amazing snack food. And I somehow crunch some pizzerias into the casing of our first VHS of Hook. And uh, and I didn't want to tell my parents, so I had to walk to the video store myself and buy a new copy of, of Hook. How did you get inside? Were you using it as a plate? We're not here to talk about that, Ed. Um, the name Wendy uh, was inspired by young Margaret Henley, who was the daughter of, uh, uh, of J.M. Barry's poet friend, W.E. Henley. Wendy, uh, excuse me, young Margaret Henley had a difficult time pronouncing R's, and so she used to call J.M. Barry... Um, rather than Mr. Barry, my Fwendy Wendy. And it was from that um, that little uh, Nikki for him, my Fwendy Wendy, that he derived the name Wendy, which he gave to Wendy Darling. How about that? Hmm. Well, Brendan, you're one for one. Uh, Brendan, I made headlines in Texas when I wore pink sneakers while filibustering a Texas abortion bill in 2013. Which pernicious pro-choice Wendy am I? Oh, gosh. Um, I remember the sneakers that got auctioned off for some atrocious charity. Um that wendy davis well done brendan two for two i didn't know if you were going to get that one wendy davis in 2013 made headlines for filibustering a bill that would have restricted um the practice of abortion in texas then um became sort of a national celebrity for about five minutes ran for governor of texas the next year got walloped and um and i don't know i don't know what she's doing now brendan what is she doing now uh obviously not being texas governor yeah that's right but uh 
I, I think she might have body swapped into Beta O'Rourke. But, uh... <laughs> I, I think the technical term is transitioned. I, I am the star of a 1960s comic book series that began as a backup feature in the Casper, the Friendly Ghost comic book. So a backup feature is when you're reading a comic book and then there's like two pages of another comic. And okay, I am the star of a night. And Ed, Brendan, if you don't know this one, Ed is jumping out of his seat. I am the star of a 1960s comic book that began as a backup feature in Casper, the Friendly Ghost comic books. And this is where Brendan might really know because I feel like this is going to be. I was portrayed by Hilary Duff in a 1998 direct-to-video film, Casper Meets Wendy. Which Wendy am I? Wow. Um, I, I will ask Ed for a lifeline on this one because I have no idea. I don't know who I, Hilary Duff is, but are we talking about Wendy the Witch? Wendy, oh, I'm going to need a little bit more. Wendy Casper, the Friendly remember, Witch? Casper is the Friendly Ghost, so you can sort of see the naming pattern here. No, it's Wendy um, the Friendly Witch. Oh, gosh. I can only give Brendan half a point on this, and it's your fault. Um, Wendy, the good little witch. Oh, right. There's no such thing as a good witch. We all know that, but um, comic book writers don't always. So Wendy, the good little witch... Was uh, was this, was kind of a uh, had little backup features in Casper Comics in the 1950s, and then in 1960 she got her own comic book series that was immensely popular. And if you have original Wendy the Good Little Witch comics, they're somewhat valuable um, these days. I do not know the value of an original VHS copy of the Hillary Duff film um, Casper Meets Wendy, <laughs> um, and I never got pizzerias in it, so I never had to buy buy a second copy. So what do I know? Okay. Um, Brendan, I know that um, this probably doesn't describe you, but it does describe a surprising number of our listeners. Um, I do not believe that you are a professional wrestling fan. Am I right about that? I, I am not a professional wrestling yeah. fan. No. Neither am I. Uh, I mean, I once was, but that was I was I was nine, as professional wrestling fans ought to be. Um, and uh, and uh, and so I didn't know this one either. But a lot of our listeners are professional wrestling fans, and so I know that they're going to know the answer to this. Um, but I've give, put some hints in there for you. I am an American professional wrestler who held the WWF Women's Championship belt twice, and I was before that a rodeo star. Now I'm a realtor. And I have the same last name as a famous late night TV sidekick who blocked JD on Twitter. Which Wendy am I? <laughs> so if I fail in this one, I'm failing in JD uh, trivia. Yeah, as failing well in as, a little uh, bit. Ed, do you remember trivia. when a late night TV sidekick blocked I me do. on Twitter? I'm trying to remember his last name because I don't. I don't actually know his full <laughs> name because I just know him as. The sidekick to the loser who sits at the end of the couch. Yeah, right. Exactly. Um, yeah. So this guy, I, I can't remember. This guy made some very extremely like maybe this was six months ago or something like that made some extremely anti-catholic comments in a tweet and i responded to him in a in the ironic manner with which i tend to try to respond to these things and in, in a way which underlined not only was he wrong but he was also stupid and making himself look so in public i believe i i believe i did everything i could to respect his human dignity the dignity of this tv sidekick but he ha was having none of it he blocked me on twitter um you might remember him brendan i'll give you another hint from um uh, from the television program, well, I suppose shortly, Late Night with Conan O'Brien, um, where he was a sidekick, if that's a help at all. No, no. Uh, I think Imagine the being the less funny guy on Conan O'Brien. <laughs> Good Lord. Uh, you know, the only female wrestling star that I, I am aware of is Ronda Rowdy, so I, I'm just out of luck on this <sighs> one, unless it is Wendy Rowdy and she's a relation. I'm very, very sorry uh, to both of you. I know a lot of our listeners knew it, though, because we have so many professional wrestling fan listeners um, and maybe some fans of 
Texas Realtors, which is what this professional wrestling champion is doing. Now, uh, I am talking about Wendy Richter, professional wrestling star Wendy Richter. So, Brendan, you are... I hope they got a lot of Richter scale jokes in. Oh, on like, I hope you know, they did. 10 I... on the Richter yeah. scale. I hope her finishing move was called the earthquake and these kind of things. I mean, if not, they really, they just wait. It was a hugely wasted yeah. opportunity. Yeah. They're okay. still waiting for her to come destroy Los Angeles. Okay, Brendan, so you are... Okay, so on your own, you got two... Then uh, you got a half a point for Ed's kind of whiff at Wendy the Good Little Witch. So you are uh, effectively two and a half for four at this point, which is okay. But I think if you can finish strong, you're going to be much better. Um, I am the daughter of American businessman Dave Thomas, but my name is not actually Wendy. Which Wendy am I? Oh, well, so that is Wendy Thomas, who remains a franchise holder for the Wendy's company. Uh, And yes, her name is not actually Wendy. She was another child who could not pronounce her name well. I want to say it was something like Melinda Lou. We got to put in some cool side effects there because, Brendan, you nailed it. I am Melinda Wendy Thomas, daughter of the founder of Wendy's and Brendan's former boss. So well done, Brendan. You finished very, very strong in which Wendy am I? And thank you so much for coming on. Ed, tell him what he's won. Uh, you have won the right to petition entry into the heretical society, the Freemasons, of which Dave Thomas was a 33rd degree is member. That, uh-huh. Is that so? I did not know that. I, I like to think that the creation of the Breakfast Baconator, which is a glorious thing and I, I believe came after Dave Thomas's passing, um, was basically an act of atonement by the Wendy's company for his <laughs> this was their their way of trying to exercise the ghosts that way, may well be and it may well be that our sponsor for this episode has derived some value by their association with us after that conversation but i doubt it nevertheless this episode of the pillar podcast was brought to you by seton home study school an accredited school assisting homeschooling parents with an academically excellent and authentically catholic curriculum to find out if seton home study school is right for your family check it out at seatonhome.org the pillar podcast was brought to you by pillar media and ed and jd production i'm your host and pillar editor-in-chief jd flynn i'm joined by my podcasting partner pillar co-founder ed condon and our guest was pillar contributing editor and data guru extraordinaire and big time wendy's customer even to this day brendan hodge brendan thanks so much for coming on and we will be back next week